Welcome to State Lobbying Heroes Podcast, a podcast where we delve into the careers and personal life stories of some of the best and the brightest state government relations experts. I'm your host, Deepak, CEO of Legistracker. Today, I have a very special guest who has over 30 years of experience being a lobbyist in South Carolina, Mary Green. I had the pleasure of working with Mary as a consultant for my legislative bill tracking service. You can reach Mary at greengrassroots at aol.com. That's green, G-R-E-E-N-E, grassroots at aol.com. Without any further delay, here's Mary Green. Hi, Mary. How are you? Hi, Deepak. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast. You have been a great help to me when I was actually building the Legistracker service. So I just wanted you to be the first guest of my podcast. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I'm very honored. And how have you been coping up with the current COVID situation? Well, I've been very fortunate. I have a beautiful home down on the marsh in the low country of South Carolina, and I've been spending most of my time down there and have moved my office to the back porch. So I watch the tide come in twice a day and try to get stuff done for still keep up with doing stuff for clients. So it's been a beautiful place to get to spend some time and still try to keep up with working a little bit. Oh, that's amazing. I totally envy you. (laughs) I'm very lucky. (laughs) Have you learned anything from this situation? I mean, I, for one, I have two kids, two toddlers, and my respect for the school teachers and the daycare givers has gone up like 100 times up. Yeah. yeah, you know, I lobbied for the Teachers Association for a long time. So all these parents that are fussing about homeschooling their children, I hope when their children go back to school that they will have a newfound respect for their their teachers and, and the, all the folks that it takes to run the schools um, and that they'll, they'll get the respect that they've always deserved. So I, I think I, that'll be one of the good things to come out of this. I agree. And have you heard, have you learned anything about yourself during this lockdown period? Anything new or anything exciting? Um, Just how much time I can waste. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm used to being like, bump, we got to do this and we got to do that. And I'm like, oh, I got time. I I can do that later. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I was a really good time manager until I had lots and lots and lots of time. And it's like, maybe, maybe I'm not as good a time manager as I thought I was. So or maybe there's just too much time to try to figure out. I just can't seem to make myself rush and do things like I used to. So <laughs> That is so true. That is so true. Well, let's take this a little bit back, uh, back to the good old years. Um, so where, where were you born and how were you like, were you completely based in South Carolina? How did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Well, I've spent my whole life in South Carolina. I was born in Beaufort, South Carolina, which is where my home is down on the coast. Beautiful little low country town. If you've ever seen The Big Chill or The Great Santini or The Prince of Tides, all those movies were were filmed there. Pat Conroy, who wrote Great Santini and Prince of Tides, was Beaufort was his adopted home. And it's just, it's a beautiful place to grow up. It's right on the marsh. It's uh, right between Savannah and Charleston, but sort of a world away. Just a beautiful little low country town and grew up there. And um, Nice. Home I have now was my grandmother's home, which was right next door to the home I grew up in. And it was just a very, you know, idyllic little Southern childhood. And I always loved politics. And my my dad was a family court judge. He was one of the first three family court judges in South Carolina. So he was always kind of involved in the political realm and passed that down to me. And uh, when I was in ninth grade, I won the civics award for my 
high school, so I'd always kind of loved government and civics and learning about government and politics and so forth. So, but had had a really great childhood, had one older brother that, you know, we had our share of fights, but we'd beat up on each other, but defend the other one to the hilt to anybody (laughs) else. It was a great place to grow up. Beautiful little Southern town. Oh, that is so nice to hear that. And were you completely into academics? Were you like a very good student or what were you? I was a good student. I think I graduated eighth in my high school class of 300. You know, we, being a small town, most of the kids that you went to kindergarten with, you were still (laughs) going to high school with when you finished. So there there was a little group of us that went all the way through school. And, but I loved other things. I mean, I've always been a very creative person and I loved to sew and cook and create things. And so that was always a big part of my my growing up too was, you know, my parents both came of age during the depression where you made things if you didn't have them. So that was always a big part of uh, my childhood too, was cooking and sewing and, and uh, being very a Susie homemaker on the domestic front as well as academics. So, and I loved to sail and we water ski, you know, being a coastal community, we sailed a lot, water skied a lot, spent a lot of time out on, on the river. So it was, uh, it was kind of, kind of the best of all worlds. I absolutely, one of the best places I, I love to visit with my family is the, the Charleston and mm-hmm. Savannah area. That, that's like so beautiful. We and especially the place where you have both the like both the city charm and also like the coastal side of it. Yep. It's like really gorgeous. Well, Buford is right smack dab in the middle between we're about seventy miles below Charleston and about fifty miles above Savannah. We're probably not that far above Savannah as the crow flies, but having to drive there by car, you kind of have to go back inland and come back around. So we are right smack dab between the two cities. So Oh, very cool. Come see us sometime. Yes, maybe I should. And and what happened after the schoolwork? I mean, did you go to college here? I did. I I uh, went to the University of South Carolina. My father was a was a big Gamecock fan, and I'd always been reared a Gamecock fan. I looked at some other private colleges in South Carolina, but decided I would go to our state school and finished USC and did some graduate work at USC. I, um, it wasn't called the Darla Moore School of Business then. It was just called the USC Business School or the B School, but got my undergraduate degree in marketing and, at Carolina. And the first year I was gone off to college, my, uh, I came home at Christmas and my dad informed me that I would be a page come January at the State House and didn't really ask me if that's what I wanted to do. He just told me what day I would, was supposed to show up and uh, who I would be working for. And so being being around the legislature was always a big part of my college career also. So it was it was fun. We had a we, we cut a large swath through the University of South Carolina when I was uh, there. Uh, I still have friends that I made at Carolina and friends that I made at the State House that are still very dear friends today. So it, it was a it was a fun college experience. That is very interesting. So what made you pick marketing? I mean, was that something you were interested in or? Yeah, it really was. I, You know, I was talking about the domestic stuff and I always kind of thought I'd like to have a, a culinary career or a creative career or something. And okay. my dad told me he wasn't going to send me to college to learn how to do that stuff, but he'd send me to college to learn how to run the business side of it if I um, if I did have that creative career. So that's kind of why I ended up in, in the business school and ended up in marketing. So, and I... At one point, maybe thought about going to law school, but um, but ended up 
going into business school. So going to the business school. So, and I, I loved it. I mean, it was, it was very interesting and I uh, loved marketing. I had a great marketing professor my first year named Dr. Bill Morgan Roth, who was just fascinating. And, and uh, he really made me love marketing and uh, had really good professors all the way through in the marketing track at USC. That is, that is fascinating to hear. And, and I bet like what you were learning back then about marketing is probably way different right now, right? Over the past few years. Yeah, well, with the, you know, with the internet, I mean, we had the yeah. four Ps was product, place, promotion, and production, I guess, was the fourth one I'm trying to remember. Yeah. But, you know, the four Ps, and you had to get your product on the shelves in the right place, and you had to promote it in the right way. Oh, price was the other one, price. You had to have it priced right, you had to promote it, you had to have place, and you had to have the right product. So those were kind of the the four P's and now, you know, with Amazon and all these huge stores where how they play stuff is function of your eyes, all the marketing research and stuff that goes into it. Now it's changed a lot in the last 40 years. So yeah, I'm sure it would be an entirely different class if I was going back and doing it. (laughs) That's true. And you said like your, your father ended up giving you a as an as a page page is like an intern is that what it is yeah you're at the state house it's it's basically a glorified a runner or errand boy or girl you you each house member well back then each member house member didn't have one but you're appointed and you you either like some of them work in the committees or some of them work on, I always worked on the house floor and the house desk. If you know somebody, it can be anything from somebody wants you to go get a Coca-Cola for them or go run a message over to the, the, the Senate or I was a page for four years. So as I had been there a while, I helped Lois Sheely was the clerk of the house at the time. And she liked me to help run the amendment screen because I would at least sit there and pay attention and know which amendment was up and when it was time to change the amendments and that kind of thing. So it, it was, um, it was a great, it was a great job. It was a part-time job during college. Usually they were in from January till June at that, t- well, actually January till August at that time, because they didn't have mandatory adjournment, but it, it was a good job. You got to meet a lot of people learn, you know, learn about the legislative process and, and kind of keep up with what was going on in state government. So it was, it was an interesting experience. I would highly recommend it to anybody that wanted to have a career in government relations or ever thought about running for the legislature. You ought to, you ought to serve a little time as a page and see if that's really what you want to do. <laughs> I, I bet, I bet. So is that, is that job is that still around? I mean, do you? Yeah. Oh, yep. Okay. Okay. And now there, there are 124 House members in the South Carolina legislature. So every every House member now has their own page. Um, they don't necessarily that page doesn't necessarily work for that specific House member. They, like I said, they may work on a committee or something. But each House member now gets to appoint their own page. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and you did this for how long? I was a page for four years during college. Four years. All four years of college. Oh, okay. So while you were at the school of business, you were doing this in tandem. Yes. Yes. It was a like after school or afternoon job or just really good because you could kind of work around your classes. Um, I typically tried to take early morning classes. And so once I got to the state house, I didn't have to go back and forth to class. But but yeah, it was a job that you had in tandem with going to college. I see. And and was that paid or was it just completely voluntary? It was paid, not a whole lot, but Okay. You weren't doing a whole lot either, so it was yeah. like you were, you know, sling, slinging hamburgers somewhere, or waitress and tables. I agree. But it, <laughs> yeah. it was a good job. It was a fun job. So 
Yeah, that that's especially true. When I got my master's degree, I was like, I was like working at the dormitory. I was like working in the kitchen. And that was like a big learning experience for me because my my back almost broke. I, yeah. It was like really hard work. And then after I did that for about a month, I, I decided that I was not going to go back there. I was just going to find some other job in the library or <laughs> at anywhere else other than the kitchen. And yeah. So anything which pays us any amount of money at that time was was really helpful. So can you tell me like, okay, so once you got that page as, as uh, you had the experience there, then I bet that probably propelled you into getting into lobbying. Is that is that it what? Did, it did. When I was in graduate school, I worked for what was then called LPITR, which was Legislative Printing and Information Resource Technology. It was when they were first sort of starting to try to automate the legislative process, not automate it like we would think of today, but automate it. You know, they publish a calendar and a journal every day from session and just trying to put start putting that on. I think at that time we would dump it all off on a tape and take it to R.L. Bryan as opposed to, you know, them having to typeset everything by hand. So I worked for them for two years in graduate school. And you also had to keep up with like where the bills were and and what action was taken on the bills that day to go in the journal. And that was a job that I would go to late in the afternoon. And, you know, when they would be done with session and, and get that kind of stuff done. So that I did that when I was in graduate school. And then when I finished graduate school, Dick Riley, who was our two-term governor and who was later U.S. Secretary of Education under President Clinton, he was had just been elected his second term as governor. And I was hired as a budget analyst to do education and healthcare policy for him and had the great good fortune of working for him for three and a half years and think the world of Dick O'Reilly. And that really kind of got me into lobby, well, lobbying per se. The governor didn't have lobbyists, but he had you know staff that worked with the legislature. So I worked with him. And then when he left office was when I went to work for the South Carolina Education Association. I had done education policy in the governor's office. We'd gotten a big piece of legislation passed called the Education Improvement Act. And I um, went to work for the Education Association when, when Governor Riley left office. So that was really, when I went to work for SCEA was really when I started lobbying, lobbying, as I would call it, that I had to register as a lobbyist and um, meet, meet all those requirements of being, being a lobbyist. Gotcha. And this was back in what year was this? 1987 was when I went. Uh, I worked for Riley from 83 to 86. And when he left office in early 1987, I, I went to work for the Education Association and stayed there for 17 years. I was with them until 2002. So I was there for, for 17 years, 18 sessions, 17 years. Oh, wow. And this was all in that same education what, I mean, in that background itself, or were you like in a cross other space as well, or just, just that education? Um, we did K through 12 public education, but it was the teachers association. So we also, they were always real interested in employee benefit, learned more about the South Carolina retirement system than I probably ever wanted to know and about actuarial tables and life expectancies and the unfunded liabilities on the retirement system and healthcare benefits. So anything pretty much that would affect a, a teacher, gotcha. um, we, we lobbied for those things, not just we lobbied for money for K-12, but when public education is such a labor intensive field, as a lot of folks are finding out with this coronavirus, they're realizing how much time it actually does take to educate a child. Right. Um, a, lot, a big part of funding for public education has to do with, with teacher salaries 
employee benefits, state retirement system. So I kind of did the whole gamut of anything from, I was very proud that we got five-year-old kindergarten passed while I was there. So we lobbied for anything from that to State Accountability Act to revising the retirement regulations. It, it was um, it was it was very varied. At the time, about forty percent of the state entire state budget was K twelve public education. So that was always the biggest chunk of the the budget every year that we were trying to get money for. And do these like so? Is there like one single teachers association in South Carolina? No, there are two. There are okay. two. Uh, and now there's a, a third group that's been kind of interesting. There were traditionally two, and now there's something called SC for Ed that is really more just a, a completely online association. They don't have dues. They don't provide services other than, I guess, grassroots lobbying, you'd call it. But it's really been interesting to see that group emerge. And I mean, and they've probably got 20,000 members or 20,000 followers on Facebook and can, I mean, they turned out 10,000 people at State House a year ago. So I think that's probably certainly more than we ever turned out or the other teachers association ever turned out. It's been interesting to see the emergence of that group and their ability to to harness the, the tools that are available now to really turn out a crowd. And, you know, I think part of it was that, and I think part of it was teachers had just kind of had enough and had a big rally last year at the state house. So seeing the emergence of that group has, has been one of the, the interesting things to see of the way things have sort of changed over the last 40 years. Right. And typically when, when you guys meet with these associations, what kind of discussions do you have? Like, is it a spe- day you just listen into what problems the teachers are facing and, and then you kind of tailor and figure out what kind of policy needs to be changed. Well, we always had a, a legislative program that was adopted that our, we, I had a committee made up of our members that we worked with and they would bring concerns and we would develop those into a legislative program of things that we were going to be working for that year. So, uh, you know, in lobbying, a lot of times you spend, you spend about, I'd say 60% of your time working for things that your members want and, you know, we're going to try to get this or we're going to try to get that. And then the other 40% is probably spent fighting things that your members don't want. (laughs) There would always be some random bill that would crazy bill that would come up. We had a particular legislator from Charleston who shall remain nameless, but was, could always come up with some weirdo bill that we would have to spend a lot of time fighting that bill during the legislative session. So you're not only, working for things that your members want, you're, you're working to fight things that they don't want. And that's probably true whether you're a, a membership organization or I have a lot of friends who are contract lobbyists for businesses or, or work for specific businesses and are their uh, chief lobbyists for that business. And, and part of it's getting what your client wants, getting legislation passed that your client wants, and part of it's making sure that legislation that your client doesn't want doesn't get passed. Right, right. That's what I keep hearing from a lot of the lobbies who I have been in touch with. They have to be on their toes as far as like the bills they're advocating for, but also keep an eye on the bills someone else is introducing and see how you can you know, defend it or how you can yep. actually oppose it, right? Right. Yeah. And and what was, I mean, did you love that job? What, what was really great about that job the, when you were like working for the I education? Don't... 
I love that. Well, I always love government and, and the whole process. I mean, there are a lot of people that are just kind of into that whole process. I mentioned my dad was a family court judge and had always loved the political side. My mom and my grandmother were both elementary school teachers. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just grew up, grew up with a real love and respect for public education and the importance of having a solid public education system and the importance of making sure that every child got a quality public education. So I loved, I felt like it was the best combination of both my parents was, was doing what my political piece that my dad loved, but the love of education that my mom and my grandma had always had. And and I did love it for a long time. I, I always enjoyed it. You know, after I had been after four years as a page and three as a working for the governor's office and 17, I was just kind of at a point I was ready. I had been there about 25 years and, was ready to do something different in my life and had some family obligations that were coming down the pike that I needed a little bit more flexibility to deal with. But, um, but it was, I loved lobbying. I really did for a long time. And, and, you know, a large number of my friends are still lobbying and it's, it's a good group of people. I mean, people always joke about lobbyists, but I mean, we're, we have each other's backs, you know, if somebody's, you got a piece of information that's going to help somebody else. You usually pass that along. And if you're in a committee meeting and your friend can't be there, you'll cover stuff for them and, and let them know. Or if something's coming up, they need to see about, you can text them to get over to that committee meeting right now. So I always enjoyed the people. I, there were always legislators that I liked better than others, but by and large, they were always good people. And uh, I really did enjoy it for my career. And yeah, yeah. I, I, I have a, a lot of respect for you guys as well. I was at the North Carolina State House and uh, at the Legislative Assembly, and and I was just walking around. and It's such a big building; my legs got tired walking from one end to the other. And I don't know how try you guys try doing it in three or four inch heels. <laughs> oh my God! I I marble and concrete all day. So. <laughs> yeah, that was really something else. And I just did that for one day, and I can't believe it that you guys do this for over and over again for so many days yeah i mean and, and it, you know it's like the what is it the swallows that return to capistrano it's like first 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 second tuesday in january we were all right back there so <laughs> you know i think people people do it and, and make careers of it and and the importance relationships you know i think that's one thing i talked about technology had sort of it was beginning to change things when i was there but just having the personal relationships, both with people in the lobby and relationships you develop with legislators over a long time, you know, that that's still something that I think will always be important in the in the governmental arena is, is learning who people are, learning what issues they care about, being able to relate to them on the issues that you can't agree with them on and, and trying to be an, an honorable opponent on the, the issues that you can't. But but having the building those relationships with people over time, I think is one of the most important things that you can you can do as a, a lobbyist or someone in the governmental affairs arena. I totally get it. I think it's, isn't it like more of a, a psyche game, right? You have to understand where they are coming from. You have to respect the other people's opinions. You do. And, yeah. and knowing, you know, one of the first things somebody told me was to, to learn the rules. I mean, there are very specific rules in the House and Senate, and you can use those rules to your advantage, you know, just knowing the process, knowing the people, knowing who the players are, knowing, you know, what they care about and where they're, I mean, you may think they're 
opposing you because of one reason and they may have one constituent in their district that if you can get that worked out for them, they won't have a problem with the bill anymore. So it just, just kind of have to know where they're coming from and, and see things from their side and try to, you know, they're a lot of them, their biggest concern is how they're going to get reelected. How's that going to play for the folks back home? One of the beauties of, of representing the Teachers Association was I had folks back home in every one of them's district. So if I couldn't get them to talk to me or get them to, to listen to me, I usually tried to get my teachers to do a little grassroots effort and call them, write them, ask them to come meet with them at the school to try to help get their votes that way. Gotcha. And and that that's a good segue into your consulting business, which is the green grassroots. And yep. and what is what is exactly grassroots? What does that mean? Well, for like when that? I left lobbying, one of the other pieces that I'd always done at SCEA was getting our members to be involved in the legislative process. And you know, in Columbia, if you're one one person trying to talk to 170 legislators, you may or may not have a good relationship with all of them, and you may or may not be able to talk to all of them. But if you've got folks out there in each one of them's legislative district, getting them to call them and, and having that grassroots support out there. I, so I, when I stepped back from lobbying full time, I started a company called Green Grassroots and worked for a long time with a company out of Atlanta that helped us do some legislative strategies for it. We, we could pull up everybody, every person. I, I diehard Gamecock fan that I am, one of my first big clients when I left lobbying was Clemson University, which is our big in-state rival. And I worked with Clemson, MUSC, Citadel, Winthrop, the technical colleges here, private independent colleges, helping them get their alumni involved in the legislative process. And we'd take their database, in-state databases, and shred them out by House and Senate District through census codes and be able to pull up lists of here's every Clemson alumni in any given House or Senate district and be able to get the alumni in those districts to start calling and contacting their legislators to ask them to support things for the colleges. So that's basically what grassroots is, is, is finding people out there that support your side of things, that you can educate them and keep them informed, and then they'll contact their legislators so that it multiplies the voices that you have, uh, asking them to support or oppose any given piece of legislation. Okay, yeah, it makes sense. I, I now I understand that side of it. And could you like maybe walk us through like what was your typical day when you were working for your consulting? I mean, was it primarily just trying to talk to as many legislators as you can? Well, a typical day of, of lobbying is there's probably not a typical day. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. any given day, depending on what legislation's up, what uh, what they're doing during legislative session, whether it's budget week or whatever. It, the, the biggest thing is it's not a typical day. On the on the grassroots side, the a typical day was figuring out who who how we could expand the database, you know, and, and making sure that we had the information correct. We also did a thing called grass tops where not only would we take here's the all the people I can pull up this list of all the people that are in any given legislative district, but then we blast out an email to folks and say, well, tell us, tell us who, you know, do you know you, it might be your house member or you might've gone to college with, you know, Joe Schmo over here, house member that 
you could call that person and, and have a, a closer relationship with that person and be able to maybe influence that person a little better than just cold calling them. So we also spent a lot of time trying to figure out who, who knows who. I used to, when people used to ask me what I did and, you know, everybody always says, have your 30 second elevator speech ready. Well, a lot of times what I did was connect the dot. This person knows this person over here and can, can get that legislator to, to listen to them. So a lot of, a lot of a typical day was trying to connect the dots between alumni for a school or members of an organization and, and legislators that they could, that they would know and could influence more closely. Yeah. I I bet this is more of understanding and more of networking and trying to get as many people to be on your side than anything else, right? It's just more relationship building and all of that, right? That is exactly it. That is exactly it. Another important part was that I learned very early on from a former house, female house member named Virginia Crocker was how to count votes. And um, sometimes you only need one vote more than your opponent. And just the way the house rules work, you know, sometimes you have to have a two thirds vote or whatever, but being able to count those votes and just making sure you got one more vote than (laughs) than the other guy. And part of how you do that is networking with folks. You know, you may not, I couldn't always get legislator X to vote, but I bet I had a teacher, you know, one of their teachers, especially some of the, as I'd been there a while, some of the younger legislators, I had some older teachers that had taught them when they were children. (laughs) If I really had to pull out the ace in the hole, I'd call their former teacher and get them to, we have a state senator here, Mike Fanning, who I used to, uh, he lobbied for another uh, education group when I was lobbying. And this morning on the Today Show, uh, Craig Melvin, who's our South Carolina anchor, who's one of the co-anchors on the Today Show, they were talking about their favorite teachers. And Craig Melvin talked about his teacher, Mr. Fanning at Columbia High School and how much Mike Fanning had meant to him and so on and so forth, and that he kind of helped get him on the career he was today. And you better believe if I needed to get a hold of Mike Fanning <laughs> to vote for something, I'd call Craig Melvin and ask him <laughs> if he could call him. So uh, that's, just a, a, that's a, a very macro example of, of the way folks feel about their teachers. That's just an example that happened this very morning was Craig Melvin was talking about how much his teacher Mr. Mike Fan, Senator Mike Fanning had meant to him. So that'd be a prime example of having somebody call Mike Fanning, Craig Melvin would be a good one. <laughs> I totally get it. And uh, can you like define in your own terms, like what is government relations? I mean, for, with the vast experience you had, how would you define it? Let's say if you just wanted to explain it to like a, a young person who wants to actually get into it, how would you define it? Well, I think government relations is just representing your client to the best of your ability to whoever's going to make that decision. A lot of people need to understand the first thing you need to do when you're trying to influence a piece of legislation is understanding who's making the decision. You know, a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to call my congressman. Well, your congressman might not be the person that deals with that. It might be your state representative. It might be your local city council person. So I think government relations overall is just being able to represent your your facts, your position to an elected official who's going to make the decision of whether or not that piece of legislation is going to pass and how it's going to impact the people that you're representing and doing that to the best of your ability. Well said. And what do you feel is like the biggest challenge you have faced over the past, you know, 20 or 30 years of experience you've had? Ooh, um, 
just changes. It's you know I do think it's become much more partisan. The rise of some of the the caucuses and so forth. Certainly, at least in South Carolina, they have shortened our legislative session. When I was a page, there was no mandatory adjournment, so you know it could go all the way through the end of August. And they shortened it first to the first. Thursday in June, and then a couple years ago, they shortened it even further till the second Tuesday, second Thursday in May. So it just condenses everything into a shorter period of time, and you're trying to get more and more stuff done, and to some extent running out of time. Certainly this year, we're trying to deal with the impact of how much this COVID virus might impact budget revenue. So that's a whole nother issue that we've been been trying to deal with. But just the, it's particularly in South Carolina, I would say the, the more the rise of partisanship and condensing the session into a shorter period of time. Right. And with this COVID situation, are you seeing anything different? I mean, in terms of the number of bills getting introduced or anything's completely stark different? I, I think the biggest thing this year, you know, we were in the second year of a two-year session. So and any bills that didn't pass at the end of last year carried over till this year. So by the end of February, and we also had a big budget surplus. I mean, we were looking at an $800 million budget surplus in South Carolina, plus really great revenue growth. So one of the last things our legislature did was pass, the House passed a budget and everybody was kind of fat, happy, and sassy and, you know, had money in there for K-12 and for higher ed and for cities and counties. Everybody had a little piece of the pie and it was really, they had really done a great, great job on the budget in the house. And then a lot of people that had bills that had carried over from last year, they were in the position of working those through and getting them passed this year. And then come the second week of March, they went home on a Thursday afternoon and didn't come back the next week and haven't been back in but one day since then. So, you know, uh, they're still trying to figure out, uh, there's a thing called a sine die resolution. Our legislature was supposed to adjourn next Thursday, what they call sine die. So next Thursday would be the second Thursday in May. So they were scheduled to adjourn. Well, they hadn't met in almost two months. So they're they're coming in next week to figure out when they can, they can pass a sine die resolution that would extend the session. And the big jockeying now is to see if your bill is going to be in there to continue to be considered by the legislature, or even if you had a bill that was working the way through the process and you were poised to get it passed in March, if it's not included in the sine die resolution, it's going to die at the end of this session and would have to be reintroduced next year. So that's been one of the biggest things is, is and everybody's just holding their breath to see what the impact's going to be on the budget, both for this year, whether we have to have, probably would not have budget cuts as late as it is, but we've got a couple of reserve funds that if they have to use any of that money to balance the budget this year, those would have to be replenished for next year. And and part of it for me, you know, we hadn't dealt with budget cuts in 10 years since we had the recession. Part of it's been just remembering how all that process works and of what's the first call for this pot of money goes first to offset any budget cuts and then this pot of money. And fortunately in South Carolina, we do have some reserve funds that General Assembly has been very responsible for. But then if those, if that money doesn't get spent one year, it gets appropriated the next year. And one of my clients was number one at the top of the list to get some money out of that fund to be appropriated next year. And we're, mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out if we're going to hold that position or not. So that's been the biggest, just, and I think just the suddenness that it happened, you know, right. nobody had time to plan. So our folks are still planning on coming back and trying to get a budget passed this year. It's just 
when that might, when it might be safe for them to come back. Right. And I mean, did they at least come up with any tentative date when they're going to be coming back? In yeah, they're coming back next Tuesday, Tuesday next through Tuesday. Thursday of next week, the 12th through the 14th. And then there's a budget revenue estimate that'll come out the 14th and they'll figure out how good or bad that is. And then go away for probably till the middle of June and kind of hope things continue to improve and then come back and try to pass a state budget. But they'll pass what they call a continuing resolution next week that will let the state budget continue to operate under this year's budget until they can come back and pass a new one. Gotcha. And what do you see the future of lobbying in your state? I mean, is there all the amount of exposure you've had? Do you see something different which is going to happen if you look you know, let's say for the next five to 10 years, anything which you think may change with the way things are going to evolve? Well, I mean, I think with the limiting people in the state house, and I, you know, I hope at some point we're going to get over the COVID and have a vaccine and get it all behind us, but they have not, when they came back in April, no one was allowed in the state house other than House and Senate members and staff. Next week, nobody's going to be allowed up there but House and Senate members and staff. So, I think that's going to make technology even more important, both in terms of, you know, when I started out, you had to have, you had to be up at the state house, number one, they didn't close circuit it. You had to send in little messages and hope a legislator would come out and talk to you. Uh, You could call them on the phone at the desk and maybe get them out there, but now you can text them on the phone. You can have folks from their districts texting them. You can close circuit watch the House and Senate in session and most of the committees in session. So I think more and more being able to harness that technology, harness being able to keep in contact with them, having a good set of phone numbers and email text messages to be able to send them those messages in, having alumni or members out there in their districts that can talk to them on the weekends and talk to them Uh, get a hold of them during session when they might respond to those folks when they wouldn't respond to a lobbyist. I think being able to have an operation outside of the four walls of the South Carolina State House is going to continue to be even more important than it's than it's always been. And and on the other hand, continuing to have those pers- build those personal relationships with people um, so that you can get them to return a phone call or a text or give you their best cell phone number instead of yeah. <laughs> instead yeah. of their throwaway phone or whatever. So, um, you know, I, I think it's going to continue to be technology can, can do great things and help you harness all of that information, but you still need those personal relationships with legislators to be able to, the, both, you know, one hand needs to know what the other hand's doing. So they, they need to go hand in glove with the technology piece and the personal relationship piece. I, yeah, yeah, that's that's totally true. And um, so what's next in your life? I mean, what, what is it that you're planning to do next? Are you going to continue working as, you know, at the grassroots level? Or are you going to do something else? I'm going to continue working at the grassroots level, but I have also completed a cookbook of family stories and Very recipes nice. and recollections. There are a few legislative stories in there over the last 45 years, 40 years, and it's under review at a university press right now. And hopefully I'm going to be publishing and promoting that cookbook. So that's something I've kind of come full circle. I said at the beginning, I wanted to create a career and came to Carolina to learn how to market it and manage it. So after a 40-year political career and legislative career, I'm finally getting back around to maybe having that creative career as I ride off into the sunset. But I'll still be doing legislative. I think I'll always keep a hand in the legislature and enjoy 
keeping up with what's going on at the at the South Carolina General Assembly. That is so exciting. And and is this cookbook like all the dishes you've learned from your mom or is it, it is. Something okay. uh, from from family i've got you know my dad's french toast recipe in there my older brother as i refer to it took the scenic route through south carolina colleges and <laughs> universities <laughs> so my older brother took six years to finish college six years and several colleges to finish get his degree and <laughs> learned how to make a very good peach daiquiri when he was at the college of charleston so that's in there and my mom's divinity icing recipe on a good cake and my grandmom's recipes and my aunt's and lots of family funny stories about family friends and family. So it's sort of a food memoir and a cookbook all rolled up into one. Oh, that is so cool. And, and, and a little South Carolina history thrown in. So <laughs> that is so cool. And when do you anticipate the book to be out? Maybe in the next. I'm hoping next spring. It, it's under peer review right now, and and if the if that press publishes, it would be in their catalog for next spring. So. Oh, that is so cool. You should give us an update whenever you have that out, and then. Uh, I will, honey. If I if when I sign that contract, you'll probably be able to hear me screaming all the way up there. And <laughs> I can't remember if you're in Apex or Cary. I know you're. I'm in Apex. I'm in Apex. My dad's family was from Apex and Cary. My dad father's side of the family the green side so you, yeah you did tell me about it you said yeah. you were going to visit apex for like dropping off something at the library or something like that you said I, when we were going to scotland last summer i got one of my cousins that lives i can't remember the name of the town he lives in he actually kind of lives between apex and where i-77 goes up through the other side of north carolina so he came over and met me at a starbucks but i gave him i had my father's family bible going back many, many generations that I wanted to get to him and my my great-grandfather's pocket watch. And my dad's family were all missionaries. My dad's way back side of the family, his grandparents and further back were Baptist missionaries to China. So I wanted to get all that stuff to my cousin's a, a minister and I wanted to get all that stuff to him so he would have it and could hand it down to his children and grandchildren. So, but we did that, but I still want to come at my great grandfather Green's papers are at the um, a seminary at Wake Forest, all his papers from the seminary that he founded in Canton, China. So I want to come up there sometime and see those, but I hadn't quite gotten up there yet. Uh -huh, <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. Yeah. The only, the only time I've been in your neck of the woods recently was I went to a dear friend had cancer surgery at Duke back last fall and I went up there with him for two nights but I didn't do anything but take care of Bubba while I was up there that oh, okay yeah yeah just, just let me know if you're anytime around this okay. way we should probably meet up and and, yeah. and uh, can you like me one piece of advice you would give for the upcoming lobbyists one piece of advice what would you do build your relationships build your reputation and always guard your reputation very closely. Cause once you, you know, you're a lot of times all your credit, all you have up there with legislators is your credibility. And if you blow that it takes a long time to get it back. Oh. And um, I would just say, you know, build your personal relationships with people and, and always maintain your credibility with them. Yeah. Perfect. That's, that's fantastic news and fantastic advice to end this uh, session. Thank you so much, Mary, for taking the time to speak with me. I really do appreciate it. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. That was a very fun conversation with Mary. You can reach Mary again at greengrassroots at AOL.com if you have more questions about lobbying or do drop her a note about her upcoming cookbook as well. That's it from me for this episode, guys. Please do write a comment 
or review about this podcast. Your feedback will help me host these interviews better. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, take care of yourselves and your family members.